All right, guys, I hope you are ready for today's episode where we break down UFC Vegas 63, Cater versus Allen. In the main event of the evening, you have a featherweight division fight, a five-round main event between the number five-ranked Kelvin Cater, who comes into the fight with a record of 23 victories and six defeats, going up against the number six-ranked Arnold Allen, who comes in with a phenomenal professional record of 18 victories and one defeat. All right, there's really no intro today. Um, I just, it's really late where I'm at. So I want to try to get these picks out as best as I can and get them out to you. You know, I want to give the best product with the least amount of time, basically. I don't want to have a super long episode today, but I am going to look to break down the best matchups on the card, give you some looks for potential bets for the week. I mean, obviously you can bet what you want and I'm not going to tell you what to do. But, you know, I like to give you my insights and maybe playing over-unders, playing fight goes the distance, not to go the distance, looking at underdogs, stuff like that. So let's just get it started. We're going to start off with a bout in the, let's see, we'll go over to the prelims. We're going to talk about a fight in the, let's see, we'll talk about the, the last prelim. In the middleweight division, you have a battle between Phil Hawes, who comes into the fight with a record of 12 victories and three defeats, going up against Roman Dolidze. Uh, Roman Dolidze versus Phil Hawes. Let's take a look at this fight. So basically, what you're going to get here is a guy in Roman Dolidze who was a huge underdog in his last fight against Kyle Dawkins. I mean, a huge, huge underdog. Not a lot of people expected him to get the job done there. They thought that Kyle Dawkins was going to pick him apart on the feet and then eventually get him to the ground and submit him if he did, just like he almost did to Kevin Holland. He technically did, but obviously headbutt, so it was a no contest. But Roman the Caucasian Dolidze. Uh, Dolidze's a solid fighter. He's got a lot of power, and when you have a lot of power, that's something you have to worry about going against a guy in Phil Hawes. I mean, that's not something that Dolidze has to worry about, but that's something that Phil Hawes is going to have to look out for. Because even though Phil Hawes is by far the more technical striker, he's by far going to be the more well-rounded guy, the more dangerous guy on the feet. He has had the tendency to get caught in the past. And there's been fights where a lot of people thought he was going to run through his opponent and he's got caught. He's got finished. And Phil No Hype Hawes is, like I said, going to be the more well-rounded striker, going to be better at range. The one-two, the jab. If he can fight behind the jab for the fight, he's going to pick apart Roman Delidze. It's going to be Delidze crashing the pocket getting into close distance, getting into clinch range, trying to land some elbows, trying to land some knees like he caught Kyle Dawkins with where he got that TKO finish in the first round. He's very wild. He's very reckless is Dalidze on the feet. He's got a very tall, long, he's built very well for this division is what I'm trying to say, but he's very long. He's very tall, got a really nice frame for the weight class, but Phil Haas is going to be faster. He's going to be the slicker striker, the jab, can win him the fight. You know, you've heard a right hand take you around the block, a jab will take you around the world. I feel like a jab can single-handedly win Phil Haas this fight if he can use it effectively with that lateral movement, with his in-and-out style, with those little slight angle changes as he moves left and right. The jab cross is going to be what wins Phil Haas this fight. He can pair it up with a hook cross. He can go cross hook. He can step in controlling your wrist and hand trapping to come over the top with a lead elbow. He can throw a right hand and then step over from orthodox into southpaw and change stances with a southpaw elbow. Obviously, we know that Roman Delidze is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. He's a very 
decorated Brazilian jiu-jitsu artist, competed in multiple jiu-jitsu tournaments, some of the some of the highest level of Brazilian jiu-jitsu tournaments in the world the Lidze has competed in. And, you know, the only thing with this fight is Phil Haas is such an outstanding wrestler. He's so hard to get to the floor that having that wrestling advantage, we've talked about wrestling versus jiu-jitsu, unless the wrestler sticks his neck out and, you know, Delidze is able to grab his neck, maybe he can lock him up in a guillotine. Maybe if Phil Haas gets in a scramble and he gives up his back, he can get choked out by Delidze. Like, there's definitely areas in this fight where Delidze can dominate Phil Haas on the mat, but I just don't see a way for him to get it there with how good Phil Haas' wrestling is, whether it's offensively or defensively. You look at the stats for the grappling, and Phil Hawes has a 100% takedown defense. He's never been taken down in the UFC. Now, his takedown accuracy, 33%, but I don't think he's going to be looking to take down Delidze. If anybody's going to be shooting takedowns, looking to get the floor to the mat, it's going to be Delidze because Phil Hawes is picking him apart with that jab, piecing him up with the one-two at range, and just being able to really, really pick him apart. They both have wins over Kyle Dawkins. Delidze obviously finished him in the first round. Phil Hawes won by decision. You know, in, in most cases, MMA math works, but sometimes it never works. This is MMA. This is a game of inches. And just because certain fighters fought the same opponent and, you know, they may have both beat him, but one, uh, one performance looked better, that doesn't mean that that fighter is always going to win who had the better performance against the similar opponent. I think Phil Hawes wins this fight pretty easily, but I am a little bit worried about the, the chin of Phil Hawes. You know, he's gotten caught by a lot of guys. And even in fights where he doesn't lose, he can get caught, he can get hurt, he can get wobbled. He got wobbled against Kyle Dawkins. He's been wobbled in a lot of his fights before. And I worry that Delidze crashing the pocket, getting in, getting in close and landing big, heavy shots when they're in that clinch range, when they're in that, you know, crashing the pocket from boxing range to clinch range. I worry about that. Because Phil Hawes has showed some durability concerns and stuff that you have to look out for. And I think that Delidze, if he can make it a dirty fight, if he can get in close, he can catch Phil Hawes and hurt him. Early in this fight or the first, second round, he can hurt Phil Hawes. He can catch him on the chin, you know, throwing those wild, messy, dirty combinations. The only way that Roman Delidze is going to win this fight is by making it a dirty fight. He has to make it dirty. He has to make it a brawl. He has to get in the face of Phil Hawes, like I said, crash the pocket and land some big shots. He's got power, but the, the technician in this fight is definitely going to be no hype, Phil Hawes. So I think Phil Hawes is going to be able to do the damn thing here. I think he'll be able to keep Roman Delidze at distance behind that jab. It's going to be very hard for Hawes to, or it's going to be very hard for Delidze, I'm sorry, to get past that jab, you know, get past the long range he strikes, the one, two, the front kick up the middle to the body. He's very good at using that teep kick and front kick, that front snap kick right to the bread basket to keep his opponent at a distance. And that's definitely something that Dolidze is going to have trouble closing the pocket for. But if he can time Phil Hawes throwing one of those kicks and land a big shot and get Hawes off balance and then get in close, get into the clinch, get into the over-unders, get into the Muay Thai clinch and land those knees, get into the plum elbows, knees, uppercuts. He has to make it dirty, but I just don't think he's going to be able to. So my pick is going to be Phil No-Hype Hawes to defeat Roman Delidze via a second-round TKO. I think he's going to piece him up on the feet. I mean, you look at the fight against Duran Wynn, and Phil Hawes looked absolutely incredible. I mean, he looked the best he's ever looked. Lead high kicks, lead elbows, switch stance elbows from moving from orthodox to southpaw, the jab, the left hook, the one-two right down the middle. I mean, he basically couldn't miss. He was at over, I think, over an 80% accuracy rate for his strikes in that fight. 
And I think we're going to see another performance from Phil Haas. I think he's going to level up again after training out at Samford. And I think he finishes the Caucasian Roman Delidze. I Like I said, there are areas where Delidze can do well in this fight. But I think that Phil Haas is just going to be too much for him overall. All right, everybody. In the next fight, we're going to break down on the card is a battle in the UFC's light heavyweight division between Dustin, the Hanyak, Jacoby, and Khalil Roundtree Jr. Dustin Jacoby comes into this fight ranked 13 in the light heavyweight division with a record of 18 victories, five defeats, and one no contest. On the other side, Khalil Roundtree comes back with a record of 11 victories, five defeats, and one no contest. Now, you go over to uh, SureDog.com, that's usually where I look at all the records and the recent opponents. We're going to look at Jacoby first. He's got, like I said, 18-5 and five overall. 11 of those wins coming by way of KO, TKO, one by submission, and six by decision. Out of his losses, he's only been KO'd one time in professional mixed martial arts. So out of 23 fights, he's only been KO'd one time, submitted twice, and then went to decision and was on the wrong end of it two times. You look at his recent fights, he was in the UFC for a little bit a while back in 2011-2012. His last fight before he came back to the UFC was against Chris Camozzi at UFC on Fox 2 Evans versus Davis. He got submitted in the third round with a guillotine choke. After that, he went off and obviously fought in glory. He had fought the likes of Alex Pejea, which was a terrible knockout on his end, but he had a lot of success over in glory kickboxing. And in that time when he was with Glory, that's when he, you know, really refined his striking game. And he, he fought some of the best strikers in the world and basically was counted out in almost every one of his fights and had some really good success over there in Glory. But he lost that UFC fight to Chris Camozzi in 2012. But since he came back to the UFC, his return bout in the UFC was on the Dana White Tuesday Night Contender Series on August 4th. He fought Ty Flores. August 4th, 2020, he won that fight via decision, came into the UFC, knocked out Justin Ledette, basically a leg kick TKO, and then as he was standing up against the cage, he caught him with a rear uppercut, dropped him, and knocked him out. Since he's come back in the UFC, he has victories over the likes of Justin Ledette, a decision over Maxine Grisham, a TKO over Darren Stort, a decision over John Allen, a unanimous decision over Michael Oleksiejczyk, and then most recently at UFC on ABC3, Ortega versus Rodriguez, he got that first-round knockout over Daung Jung with a beautiful 1-2 right down the center line, dropped him, basically had him out before he hit the ground, and then he woke up, and some people thought maybe the fight shouldn't have been stopped, but it was a clean right hand. He caught Jung right on the chin and knocked him out. Big underdog in that fight as well, if I remember correctly. The decision win over Michael Oleksiejczyk looks good for him as well. You look at Khalil Roundtree Jr. Roundtree is just a machine. He went, Once he went over to Thailand and trained over at Tiger Muay Thai, he really refined his striking game. Like Khalil Roundtree went from a guy who just had a lot of power and had the ability to knock you out to a guy who was very, very technical on the feet. And the best display of that after he came back from Thailand was that victory over Eric, your boy, Anders. Eric, your boy, Anders, and Khalil Roundtree, man, he just absolutely demolished him. I mean, left kicks to the body, inside and outside low kicks, right hook, left kick to the body, one-two hook, left body kick, right hook, left low kick. I mean, he was just throwing combinations, his speed, his power. It was unmatched. I didn't know his nickname was the Warhorse, so I didn't say the nicknames. I only said the nickname for the Henyak, Justin Jacoby, but... Uh, the warhorse Khalil Roundtree, 10 and 5 overall in professional mixed martial arts. 
I believe he's actually 11 and 5. Uh, I could be wrong, but we'll go off sure dog here. 10 and 5. Seven wins by way of KO, TKO, three by decision. Out of his five losses, he's been KO'd twice, submitted once, and went to decision twice. He's on a little bit of a streak recently in his UFC career on a two-fight win streak with the leg kick TKO in the second round over Modestus Bukowskis at UFC Fight Night 191 where he landed that uh, lead leg oblique kick to the side of the knee of Modestus Bukowskis and just blew his entire knee apart. Just a nasty knockout there after he poured it on in the beginning of that first round, but then kind of slowed it down, and Modestus was able to get back into the fight a little bit. And then most recently, he had that second-round TKO over Carl Roberson at 25 seconds of the second round. That was a fight where I believe I actually picked Carl Roberson to defeat Khalil Roundtree Jr. I just thought he was the more technical guy, had the more experience in kickboxing overall. And, you know, he did going in there on paper, but when it comes to Khalil Roundtree, it doesn't matter what it says on paper, man. The guy's going to come in there, huge power, really solid speed for a light heavyweight, good technical ability as well, even though sometimes he sacrifices that technique to just put volume on you and try to put you out with the huge power shots. Khalil Roundtree doesn't have the best record. But the guy can go balls to the wall. The guy can throw bombs at your moms. And the guy, if he connects on anybody's chin, he can hurt him. I truly believe Cleo Roundtree has the type of power where if he connects on anybody's chin, he can hurt him. Um, common opponents for both men. Uh, I believe when it comes to Cleo Roundtree Jr., the only common opponent he has with uh, Dustin Jacoby is going to be Iwan Kutelaba. He lost that fight via elbow TKO in the first round. It's when... Uh, Roundtree was getting hit with elbows in the clinch, and he eventually just got dropped. Just nasty elbows from inside the clinch, right on the chin of Khalil Roundtree, and he put him out in that first round. And then before that, uh, well, no, 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 let's go back to what we were talking about. So common opponents, Iwan Kutelaba. Jacoby went to a draw with Kutelaba back on, let's see, I think it was one of the first fights when he came back into the UFC. Back on May 1st, 2021 at UFC on ESPN 23, he uh, split draw to Iwan Kutelaba. I believe some people thought that he'd won that fight. And if he would have won that fight, then since his return in the UFC, he would have gone undefeated. But he's overall, since he came back to the UFC, we won't count the contender series. He's got a record of six victories, no losses, and one draw since his return to the UFC. Roundtree Jr. overall in the UFC, I believe, holds a record of, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, six and five overall in the UFC. He's got losses to Andrew Sand. Uh, we won't. Do we count? Yeah, we'll count it. We'll count the Ultimate Fighter finale. Uh, he's got the decision loss to Andrew Sanchez. The rear naked choke submission to Tyson Pedro came back on a KO over Daniel Jolly. A KO over Paul Craig in the first round. Um, a no contest to Michael Oleksicic, so that's another common opponent for Jacoby, and Jacoby was able to defeat him via decision. He's got that knockout victory in the first round over Gokan Saki. Looked amazing in that fight, and that's another common thing with Jacoby. You know, Gokan Saki, world-class, multiple-time world champion kickboxer, fought some of the best of the best when it comes to kickboxing. The Gokan Saki fight and the Dustin Jacoby fight have some similarities here. You have two guys against Roundtree Jr. This will be the second one with world-class kickboxing ability. You know, multiple-time world champions in kickboxing. High, high-level kickboxers. Like I said, Jacoby fought uh, Alex Pereira over in glory. He got knocked out with a beautiful left hook that basically spun Jacoby on a complete 180. But 
it is what it is. He still fought him. He still got in there with that guy. Uh, you know, Cleo Roundtree Jr. has that loss to Johnny Walker. You know, that doesn't look the best because Walker just kind of hasn't really been there lately. He hasn't really been in the game lately. He's done okay. I think he won his last fight, but, you know, he just he, he's not the guy that we all, you know, cracked him up to be. When I look at the fight, you got Orthodox versus Southpaw. Jacoby's going to be fighting out of Orthodox, but he'll do that switch 45, which we'll talk about later when we get to the main event, where they'll briefly cut the angle and switch to Southpaw. And then just twit and then just move laterally and switch back to orthodox. That's kind of to box the opponent in and square up their stance, get you to move one way, thinking the power is coming from that side. Then when you switch back, you get them directing into that power and you square up their hips so they're not able to get optimal power in their counters unless they time you stepping in on the switch. Kind of like uh, even though it's not the same switch, kind of like Pedro Munoz timed. Dominic Cruz when he stepped in and caught him with that right. I believe it was a right hand as he stepped in and tried to switch. But it's not the same exact switch. The switch 45 is just a little brief. Uh, Let's say if I'm an orthodox, you're going to briefly, you know, do that little pendulum step, cut that angle, and you're going to switch to southpaw. But then right as you switch to southpaw, you're going to step your rear foot back and do another angle to the opposite side and then step into orthodox. So it's a little... Boom, boom, get the outside angle, then step back into the original stance to square up the opponent's hips and get them on the center line, get them squared up so you can land your shots. And they uh, they don't have the enough, they don't have the correct stance to either slip out of the way or to come back with any good counters in that window. And during that window, when you do that little brief switch, you can catch them with straight shots. You can catch them with hooks. Jacoby's very good at that, but he mainly fights out of orthodox. He's going to be looking to land that jab. He's going to be looking to land that one-two, that hook cross. Really, really powerful right hand does Jacoby have. You saw in the showcase against Daung Jung. And with his kickboxing experience, man, if he catches Roundtree Jr. on the chin, I think he can hurt him and I think he can put him out. But if he hurts him and he smells blood, expect both of these guys, not even just Jacoby, because Roundtree Jr. is going to come in and try to rip your head off. But Jacoby, if he smells blood, he can pour it on up against the cage with elbows, knees. You know, working from inside the clinch, I think, would be a good weapon for Jacoby in this fight because we've seen Roundtree Jr. have issues in the clinch against Iwan Kutelaba. So I think if you throw those elbows, uppercuts, knees to the body inside the clinch, you can have some you can have some good success on Roundtree and potentially hurt him and get a TKO. I think the, the technical ability is very solid on both sides. I'd give the power advantage 100% to Khalil Roundtree Jr. Like I said, when the fight starts, man... Khalil is one of the scariest dudes on the planet. They His nickname, the War Horse, they don't call him that for no reason. He's going to be looking to step forward. He's going to be looking to close the distance and right hook, straight left, right hook, straight left, right hook, left overhand, switch, left hook, right hand, right overhand, right hook, left inside low kick, right hook, left body kick, right hook, straight left, right hook, right hook to the body, left, left low kick, cross hook, left body kick, cross hook, left low kick, cross hook. Left hook, right hook, right hook, left hook. I mean, he's going to just come forward and try to put you out. So if Jacoby can time it, fight technically, and keep the bout at kicking range, I think Khalil Roundtree Jr. can have success at kicking range. But if it stays at kicking range or just outside of it, and it's kind of a poke and prod, you know, touch and go style of fight, I don't expect Dustin Jacoby to lose that fight any day of the week. The only way I expect Khalil Roundtree to catch Jacoby or beat Jacoby is to catch him with a big shot. And that's one of the best ways that Khalil Roundtree wins his fights is just coming in, closing the distance, you know, crashing the pocket, 
right hook, straight left, right hook, left overhand, you know, really, really solid power in that lead right hook, left body kick, huge power in his kicks. He can definitely hurt Jacoby. He has the ability to catch Jacoby on the chin, hurt him and put him out 100%. I definitely think that's a possibility, but honestly, I think that Jacoby's ability to switch stances, his ability to use that jab, fight behind that jab. And once he gets that range, throw those low kicks, throw those teeth kicks, switch stance, left, straight, right hook, double jab, right hand. I think he's going to be able to just kind of poke and prod at Khalil Roundtree. We've seen that the only way that Khalil has success really is by crashing the pocket, by coming in, just trying to bomb at you, just trying to put you out. If Jacoby can weather the storm early. I think Jacoby can pick him apart and potentially get a late finish if he slows down Khalil with those low kicks. Really good right low kick, left hook, right hand, straight one two down the middle. You know, those fake stance switch go back one two, fake the stance switch to southpaw, right hook, left straight, go back to orthodox, double jab, right hand. The right hand of Jacoby, I think, is going to be a big weapon against the southpaw and Roundtree Jr. He's going to be looking to get that outside foot, left hook, right hand, double jab, left hook, right hand. He's going to be looking to get that outside foot main weapon when you're going orthodox versus southpaw. And this isn't going to be the only fight that we talk about this, you know, with. But I'm going to go with Dustin Jacoby here. I think he's going to be able to use that kickboxing experience, the experience he's had in glory, the overall more experience he's had in MMA. And I think he's going to be able to fight at the, at the distance that he wants to control the range, keep it at a kicking distance, land those inside and outside low kicks, land the one two, control the jab, which is going to stop Roundtree Jr. from wanting to crash the pocket if he can't slip his head off the center line and get past that lead hand weapon that Jacoby uses a lot. Um, I think he's going to start landing those right hands, double jab, right hand, left hook, right hand. And um, I think we're going to see Jacoby Cruz to a decision. I think that Roundtree Jr. is durable. Um, I could see a late finish for Jacoby, but if a knockout does come from either side, I would expect the KO to probably come from the side of Khalil Roundtree Jr. But I'm going to go with the hand yak to defeat the warhorse here and the number 13 ranked Dustin Jacoby to defeat Khalil Roundtree Jr. via a 29-28 unanimous decision. I just think the range is going to be too much. Um, like I said, if Khalil can't crash the pocket early, get in the face of Jacoby and knock him out like we've seen him do to other world-class kickboxers like, you know, a Gokan Saki, um, I think that Jacoby should have a good time keeping it at a distance, jabbing left hook, right hand, right low kick, inside and outside low kicks, using the teep kicks at the correct distance, Fighting inside the clinch whenever Jacoby or whenever Roundtree Jr. tries to close the distance. I think we'll see some good clinch work from Jacoby here. We saw him do some good work against the cage against Justin Ledette. So I'm going to go with the more experienced athlete, the more experienced stand-up artist here to win a battle of most likely striking 100% of the time. Not like 100% of the time he'll win. I'm saying 100% of the time these guys are going to engage in a striking battle. I don't see too much wrestling coming from Jacoby or Roundtree Jr. But I'm going to go with Dustin Jacoby to win via 29-28 unanimous decision. I could see a late TKO. I could see Roundtree Jr. coming out in the first round and dusting Dustin Jacoby. I could see him dusting Dustin, but uh, I'm not going to go with that. I think experience pays off here. I love Roundtree Jr. I think he's great. I think he's a beast, but I think Jacoby is going to be too much for him, especially on this little streak he's got going on. Um, yeah, I, I got to side with the hand yak here. All right, and the next fight up on the card is going to be a battle in the middleweight division between Josh Fremd and Treshawn Gore. 
Let's see. What are their nicknames here? Josh Frem, no nickname. I don't think Treshawn Gore has a nickname either. Uh, Mr. Vicious. Okay, so Josh Fremd versus Mr. Vicious, Treshawn Gore. Um, this is an interesting one, you know, and I think that if Gore had had more success in the UFC going into this fight, they probably would instantly just be on the side of Gore after how he looked on the Ultimate Fighter. Some vicious KOs on the, in the Ultimate Fighter house, you know, knocked out, let's see, Gilbert Urbina in the second round and then won that decision over Ryan Newman, which was the qualifier for the Ultimate Fighter. And then he lost to Brian Battle in the Ultimate Fighter finale. But on the show, he showed good technical ability, a lot of power in his hands, kind of that hands-high, walk-forward Dutch style of kickboxing. That's what Mr. Vicious Treshawn Gore showcases. You know, he's in a walk-forward, going to keep his hands high, you know, right low kick, left hook, left hook right hand, jab overhand, jab right hand, left hook, left hook right hand. Just really basic combos, but walking forward, trying to pressure the opponent, cut him off, and then land bombs on his chin and knock him out. That's who Treshawn Gore is. He doesn't really use his wrestling unless it's defensively to stuff the takedowns and then work your way back up to your feet. But he really, really hasn't showed much in the UFC. And, you know, he's 3-2 and two as a pro, but he came into the UFC with a record of 3-0. and oh. I mean, he was undefeated, really not too much experience, but he showed some good um, ability on the in the tough house, you know, showed some like he was good, like he knew how to, you know, preserve his gas tank, like he knew how to not explode all the time, but, you know, that eventually came back to bite him. Before he got into the UFC, he had three victories. It was a this split decision over Prince Ellerby in NFC. Uh, he had a TKO in the first round over LJ Jones at NFC 108. The first fight that we talked about with Ellerby was at NFC 105. And then he had that rear naked choke submission in the first round over Christian Eccles at AFC 5, where he won via first round rear naked choke. Then he lost to Brian Battle at UFC Fight Night 200 via unanimous decision. Battle just kind of outpointed him, outpressured him, outvolumed, outvolumed him. Man, my sinuses are so bad right now. I can't even talk. He out-volumed him and, you know, just really couldn't give Gore the openings. You know, when he had hurt battle at certain points, they fought in the Ultimate Fighter house, I believe, and he was able to... No, it was in this fight. It was in this fight uh, at UFC Fight Night 200. I'm thinking they fought twice. But he was able to hurt him, you know, early in that fight, drop him, and basically have him dead to rights. But he just couldn't pull the trigger. He couldn't finish. And then, you know, he let Battle back into the fight and just allowed him to pick him apart, stay at range, constantly change his angle, and just had Treshawn Gore sitting there with a high guard kind of walking forward, eating a bunch of shots, but not coming back with counters of his own. And then most recently, he had that uh, loss via first-round KO to Cody Brundage in a fight where I think everybody thought that Treshawn Gore was going to come in here and make easy work of Brundage. He thought they were going to, they thought he was going to make light work of him. Come in, knock him out, and move on to the next one. You know, this guy showed a lot of, you know, promise on the Ultimate Fighter. And he walked forward on Brundage. Brundage timed one of his low kicks as he came forward. He was off on an angle, kind of in a short side stance. Timed the one-two, stepping in. Hurt him with that right hand. Dropped him and finished him off. Knocked him out. Got on the top of him. Jumped in the full mountain, landed bombs, and finished him in the first round. So he loses in a fight where he was a hefty, hefty favorite over Cody Brundage and then loses his first fight in the UFC 
to Brian Battle via unanimous decision where he just couldn't let it go. And this is the thing with Treshawn Gore. He doesn't have a lot of volume. He doesn't use his wrestling only for defensive purposes, but he can't let his combinations go. He's got technique. He's very technical. He's got good power, but he doesn't let it go. You know, he's kind of a head case when it comes to mixed martial arts. He gets in his own head. He looks for the openings, downloads the data, but then he overanalyzes. It's kind of paralysis by analysis with Treshawn Gore. He's waiting there looking for the opening. Sometimes he'll explode, look to land on the chin and put the opponent out. But a lot of the time, he's not letting it go. He's not letting his combinations fly. He's not letting that power that we know he has go. And that's been his biggest weapon uh, against himself. And then you look at Josh Fremd, came into the UFC with a debut fight against Anthony Fluffy Hernandez, who has a, a huge success rate in the UFC lately. We'll pull it up right here. Um, let's see. Josh Fremd. When you look at Anthony Fluffy Hernandez, his overall record in professional MMA is 10-2. and two. He's got one win by KOTKO, seven by submission, and two by decision. But he's on a three-fight win streak recently with that huge upset submission victory over Rodolfo Vieira at UFC 258 via second-round guillotine choke. That unanimous decision victory over Josh Fremd, which we're going to obviously we're talking about in this breakdown, and then that arm triangle choke submission over Mark andre Burial. The last loss he had came to Kevin Holland back in May 2020 in the first round. Then before that, he had a win over Ja Young Park, and then prior to that, he had an uh, anaconda choke submission loss. But in the UFC, he's 4-2. Uh, you know, Josh Fremd came in to the fight against Anthony Fluffy Hernandez on short notice, and he had some really, really solid success. He trains out of Factory X with Coach Mark Montoya. I actually have an interview on the podcast with Coach Mark Montoya from a little bit over a year ago, and if you want to go check that out, you can definitely do so. I'll probably post a link to that podcast episode in this description, but he talks about Josh Fremd a lot. He, he sang the kids' praises, said that this guy was definitely going to be in the UFC. He had all the weapons to be one of the best in the world. He was one of the best in the world. I asked him who one of the best guys in the gym was, and he would not stop talking about Josh Fremd. And we saw him against Anthony Hernandez. He had a good showing, man. Obviously got out-wrestled, got taken down. But on the feet, had some good success. He's got a really solid left hook, and there's no wind-up in it. It's not over-committing. It's just boom, just just shooting it, just popping it right there. Just bop, 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 just right there. Really solid left hook, good right hand. Loves to throw the right outside low kick. He's going to be looking for that a lot against Treshawn Gore, as Gore is going to be looking for the right low kick as well. Both these guys are going to have similar weapons in this fight. Fremd, right low kick, left hook, jab, left hook, right hand, one, two down the middle. Um, both guys are very, very technical, I would say, but I give a slight technique advantage to Fremd. I think he just doesn't have any windup, but most importantly, he lets his shots go. He doesn't really let things get to him. He's coming forward, he's putting the pressure on you, and he's looking to put you out. He's a very tall guy for this division. He's tall, he's long, he's rangy for a middleweight. You look at, you know... His height, I don't know why it's not, it's not even listed. Uh, yeah, for some reason it's not listed on here. But, you know, he's a tall, long-rangey guy, and he fights with his chin up in the air sometimes. Against Gore, if Gore can land that left hook, if Gore can land that straight right, land that overhand right, you know, it can be a problem for Josh Fremd 100%. Like, I'm not going to lie to you. Um, he can get caught, he can get knocked out. But the only recent loss on Josh Fremd's record, if you look at it, he's only been KO'd one time. And you know who he lost to? Robocop, Gregory Rodriguez. Rodriguez just had that back and forth war with Chidi Njikawani where he eventually just drowned him, 
you know, tired him out and put him out under the pressure. You know, the, the Terminator, the RoboCop, Gregory Rodriguez, the guy's a monster. And he lost that fight via KO in the first round. But prior to that, he's got a first-round KO over Bruno Oliveira in a showcase bout in a tournament in LFA. He's got a KO in the first round over Antonio Jones. He's got a knee knockout in the first round over Lamar Gosi. He's got a split decision victory over Travis Davis. A second-round rear naked choke submission over Andre Hall. He's got a unanimous decision victory over Renato Valente Alves. And then a rear naked choke submission in the second round to Joel Bauman. You look at his overall record, nine victories, seven of those nine wins come by way of finish. Three by submission, four by KOTKO. Fremd is well-rounded. Fremd is not going to, you know, crack under the pressure. Fremd is going to be pushing forward. He's going to be switching stances. He's going to be looking to land that long-rangey one-two, going to be looking to land that left hook, looking to land those front kicks, looking to chop with that beautiful right outside low kick. And with the high guard of Treshawn Gore, and his inability to let things go, there's no way I can side with Gore here. Do I think Gore has more power? Yes. Do I think he can knock out Josh Fremd with that tall, you know, rangy frame and his ability, you know, the fact that Fremd keeps his chin in the air? Yeah, 100% I think he can. But the volume, the pace, the pressure of a Josh Fremd, I don't think Gore can keep up with it. And I don't think Gore can keep up with it over three rounds. I don't even think he can keep up with it for a full two rounds. I think that Frem's pace, his pressure, his volume, his beautiful technique with the left hook, the right outside low kick, the jab left hook right hand, the one-two. Like I said, long-rangey guy can land knees up the middle, and that'll work really well against the high guard of Treshawn Gore. You saw something similar in the fight with Peter Yan and Sean O'Malley at UFC 280, the high guard moving your head. You know, no, no head movement, I'm sorry, just walking forward with a high guard. You're there for the long jabs. You're there for the right hands. And you're there for the knee as you go to like lower your level. So I think those knees can be good for Josh Fremd, the long jabs, the one-twos. I really like Josh Fremd here in this fight against Mr. Vicious Treshawn Gore. I know he lost to Anthony Hernandez, but it was a short notice fight, you know, and he accounted very well for himself in that short notice fight. And I just can't back Treshawn Gore. He showed me too many inconsistencies. He'd show many too many things that he had. Um, that I should be concerned about. And I picked him to win against Cody Brundage. I thought it was going to be a pretty clear-cut knockout victory early on. And he lost, and he got KO'd by Cody Brundage. And going into a fight against Josh Fremd, who's a former LFA champion, a former LFA, you know, well-rounded, tested mixed martial artist, when Gore's only had five fights, came into the UFC 3-0 and and lost his last two back-to-back, I have to go with Josh Fremd here. He's more technical He's more well-rounded in my opinion. He's got more weapons at his disposal. I feel like he lets it go and Treshawn just doesn't let it go. I could see him finishing him late because the volume can just overwhelm Gore and get him tired. Um, But I'm going to go with a decision victory here for Josh Fremd over Mr. Vicious Treshawn Gore. So my pick is going to be Josh Fremd to defeat Treshawn Gore via 29-28 unanimous decision. Like obviously he's tall, he's long, he's rangy. He does keep his chin in the air. He can get caught. He can get knocked out by Gore. Gore has a lot of power. I just don't see it in this one overall. All right, and now we're going to get to the main event of the evening in the UFC's featherweight division. You have a battle between the number five-ranked Kelvin Cater, who comes into the fight with a record of 23 victories and six defeats, going up against the number six-ranked Arnold Allen, who comes in with a phenomenal professional record of 18 victories and one defeat. One of the highest level striking matchups you will ever see in this featherweight division. A very, very high level technical main event in a fight that I believe has been flying under the radar. Closes out UFC Vegas 63 
with a five-round main event. Let's go. It's a great fight, man. Kelvin Cater versus Arnold Allen. Both these guys, really, really solid competitors. Obviously, more competition, higher-level competition on the side of the Boston native. And Kelvin Cater. Kelvin Cater, he's fought some of the best in the division. I mean, he's fought guys like Hinato Moicano, Ricardo Lamas, Jeremy Stevens, Max Holloway, Josh Emmett. I mean, the list goes on and on. Let's see. These are the guys. Well, we'll look at it right now. The guys that Kelvin Cater has fought in his UFC career. I mean, the list goes on and on. The Boston finisher, Kelvin Cater. 23-6 and six overall. 11 wins by KOTKO. 11 wins by KOTKO. 2 by submission. 10 by decision. 6 losses. Submitted one time. The other 5 losses came on the judges' scorecards. He's had fights over the likes of Max Holloway. Giga Chikadze, Josh Emmett, Dan Ige, Jeremy Stevens, Zabit Magomed Sharapov, Ricardo Lamas, uh, Renato Moicano, Shane Burgos, Andre Feely. I mean, just that list right there. Feely, Burgos, Moicano, Lamas, Magomed Sharapov, Jeremy Stevens, Dan Ige, Giga Chikadze, Josh Emmett, and Max Holloway. I mean, he lost to some of those guys, obviously. he His most recent fight was a decision loss, a split decision loss to Josh Emmett in a five-round main event at UFC on ESPN 37. I could see in some cases how maybe you'd give the fight to Emmett over three rounds, but a lot of those shots that he was loading up with and landing, or they looked like they were landing, they were landing on the guard of Kelvin Cater. You know, the damage definitely went to the side of Cater. He was landing that jab. He landed those elbows from the rear and lead side a lot. You saw him showcase those the most in the fight against Giga Chikadze, where he went all five rounds with him in a fight that a lot of people believed Giga was going to be able to walk through Cater, and he shut that shit down right away. He's got good elbows from the lead side, the rear side, good spinning elbows, really, really solid and clean boxing. Some of the most beautiful boxing you'll see in all of professional mixed martial arts, a good jab, a great right hand, a good one-two, good hook cross. His lead hook into the right cross, the three-two, is one of his best weapons that he showcases in his entire mixed martial arts career. Um, you know, and I think that's going to be a big weapon for him here against Arnold Allen. You know, that hook cross, that long three-two, knocked out Ricardo Lamas with it beautifully. Um, he can mix up the 3-2 into a 3 into a right elbow like he did against Jeremy Stevens. He can measure with the lead hand. Measure, measure as you crash the pocket. Boom, right elbow. Measure, lead up elbow, left elbow, right elbow. Spinning back elbow, right hand, fake the right hand. Spinning back elbow, a la John Jones. Did that a lot against Giga Chikadze. Those elbows are what won him the fight. Busted up Josh Emmett's face with that jab. I mean, like I said, some of the best clean boxing in all of mixed martial arts and definitely inside the UFC. He uses his kicks pretty well too, but a lot of the time when he goes to throw his kicks, it's going to be a front kick up the middle. It's not really a lot of low kicks. It's not roundhouse kicks to the body or roundhouse kicks to the head. A lot of the time it's going to be that front kick up the middle, and then he can use that to step in with that one-two front kick up the middle, bop-bop, front kick up the middle, hook cross. Funk kick up the middle, shuffle step forward, right hand, one, two, or I'm sorry, one, two, jab right hand, fake the front kick, hook cross. I mean, the hook cross, the three, two, and the one, two um, are his best weapons, 100%, but he also has a sneaky good rear uppercut. We've talked about that on the podcast before. Um, he can also mix that lead left hook to the body. 
and then use that same level change feint to come up with the left hook to the head. But he'll duck low and make it look like it's going to go to your body and then come up top to the head. Just a really, really solid, well-rounded striker. Now, Arnold Allen, you know, 18-1 and as a professional mixed martial artist. He's got six wins by way of KO, TKO, four by submission, and eight by decision. So 10 victories out of 18 coming by way of finish to... And then obviously eight wins coming by way of decision. Only one loss he lost via decision. But Arnold Almighty Allen, you know, he fights out of England, but he trains under Faraz Sahabi over at TriStar Gym. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But 18-1 and in pro MMA, undefeated in the UFC. I believe he's 10-0. and uh, Let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9-0. and Okay, so this will be his 10th fight in the UFC. Never lost in the UFC. He's got wins over the likes of Alan Omer, Yeltsin Meza, Makwanamir Kani via split decision. That's a good win for him. Mads Burnell, who's has some, who's had some success recently over in uh, Bellator, I believe, submitted him with a rear naked choke. He's got a decision victory over Jordan Rinaldi, a decision unanimous decision victory over a mixed martial arts veteran, former Strike Force lightweight champion, and Gilbert El Nino Melendez. A unanimous decision victory over Nick Lentz. A decision victory over Sadiq Youssef. And then most recently, he got his first finish inside the UFC in the first round at 2 minutes and 33 seconds over former lightweight contender and featherweight stablemate or stablemate in Dan the Hangman Hooker. That was a very impressive win for him in that fight. Um, obviously caught him with that right hook, straight left. The 1-2 down the middle hurt Hooker early. He swarmed on him, overhand, right, left, right hook, overhand, right hook, right hook, overhand, double jab, overhand, uppercuts. You know, he he over, he swarmed, he just went to brawl because he knew he could get Hooker out of there. You know, that weight cut, the, the huge weight cut after going up at 55 for so long, definitely depleted Hooker. It's a story we've known for a very long time. You know, when you make those big weight cuts after you're so used to being in a different weight class, you know, dropping down affects your chin, it affects your durability and Maybe that played the part into it, but that's not Arnold Allen's fault. Arnold Allen looked great in that fight. But even in that fight, when he was swarming Dan Hooker after he hurt him, Hooker was able to catch him coming in with his hands low because he was just swarming, throwing from the hip, throwing wild shots, and boom, he caught him with a left hook, spun his chin around, dropped him, but Arnold Allen recovered like a Terminator immediately, got back up and came up, left straight, right hook, double or jab, right straight, Left jab, right straight, or I'm sorry, right jab, left straight, right hook, straight left, right hook, uppercut, elbow, 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 and he just swarmed on him and got him out of there. I mean, he looked amazing. He looked like a world beater. And Arnold Allen against Sadiq Yusuf, he was probably going to lose on the scorecards if he didn't score those knockdowns, but he was a smart, technical, cerebral guy. He was able to catch Sadiq with a left hand as he was off on the angle towards that rear left foot. Um, Sadiq had control of the wrist. He used that to pull him into a straight left on that angle, drop him, hurt him. And then later on in the fight, he caught him with a straight left into a same side left high kick. We've talked about the cross high kicks a lot on this podcast. You slip the cross, you're right into the line of trajectory for the left high kick as it comes up and cracks you on the chin. Same if you're an orthodox right straight, right high kick behind it, a la Robert Whitaker, a la TJ Dillashaw. But he landed that straight left, boom, right high kick, or left high kick behind it. Clanked Sadiq Yusuf on the chin, hurt him, rocked him really bad. Scored a takedown in that fight, I believe, as well. But if he didn't score those knockdowns, there's an argument that Sadiq could have won that fight. It was close. It was competitive. Sadiq landed some good shots to the body. 
He pushed the pace, you know, pushed forward, landed some good shots throughout the entirety of the fight. But those knockdowns are what secured Arnold Allen those rounds and what secured Arnold Allen the victory. So can't fault Arnold Allen for that. He was smart enough to find the opening, land those shots, and get the knockdowns like we thought. But let's look at the stats for this fight. When you look at the stats for Arnold Allen versus Kelvin Cater, you've got a 5'11", or is the height of Kelvin Cater, 5'8", for Arnold Allen. So it's going to be a 3-inch height advantage. For Kelvin Cater, he's also going to have a two-inch reach advantage at 72 inches compared to 70 inches for Arnold Allen. Uh, leg reach is pretty identical, 40-inch to 39-inch leg reach for Arnold Allen. We go to some of the intangibles and more of the stats. We'll go right now. Let's see. Win percentages for both men. You got 48% of the wins coming by way of KO, TKO, 9 by... 9% by submission and 43% by decision for Kelvin Cater. And on the side of Arnold Allen, you got 33% of the wins coming by way of KOTKO, 22% by submission and 44% via decision. Pretty close, but more knockout upside on the side of the Boston finisher and Kelvin Cater. Average fight time, 15 minutes, 36 seconds for Cater to 12 minutes and 59 seconds for almighty Arnold Allen. Uh, knockdown average per 15 minute fight more on the side of Cater, but ever so slightly 0.44 knockdowns per 15 minute fight for Cater to 0.38 for Arnold Allen. You look at significant strike percentages, 5.19 significant strikes landed per minute for Kelvin Cater to 3.31 significant strikes landed per minute for Allen. So almost a two strike advantage per minute for Kelvin Cater, 39% significant strike accuracy for Cater to an ever so slightly increase on the side of Allen at 42% significant strike accuracy rate. You look at strikes absorbed per minute, uh, 7.15 for Kelvin Cater to 2.22 for Arnold Allen. So definitely better defense on the side of Allen. But a lot of those statistics are coming from that beating that Cater took from Max Holloway that really, really um, skewed his stats. I mean, he took like 500 head strikes in that fight, never went down went to decision, but just took an ungodly beating and then just kept coming forward trying to win. But Max Holloway was just too much for him. So you can't really look at those absorbed per minute over the entirety of his career, but he is hittable. He is there to be hit, but his defense really isn't that bad. It was just, he got dominated in the fight against Holloway. Uh, defense overall, obviously, as we already known and what we just talked about, it's going to be on the side of Allen, a 54% striking defense rate for Cater to a 66% striking defense rate for Arnold Allen. You look at the grappling. This is going to be on the side of Allen for the most part. 0.44 takedowns per 15-minute fight for Cater to 1.41 for Arnold Allen. Takedown accuracy rate, 29% for Cater, but he's not looking for takedowns. He can resort to his wrestling if he needs to, but that's not really what he's looking for. 50% uh, takedown accuracy rate on the side of Arnold Almighty Allen. Takedown defense, though, really, really solid on the side of Cater. He does not get taken down. He's got a 91% takedown defense rate to a 76% takedown defense for all our uh, Arnold Almighty Allen. Submission average, we don't really even have to talk about that. It's not going to play too much of a factor in this fight. If there was a submission that were to happen in this fight, I would more go on the side of Arnold Allen, but I don't expect that to go down. Um, okay, so we're going to talk about real quick the, you know, competition. You know, we've already talked about it with Kelvin. We've talked about it with Arnold Allen. But the highest level opponents that Arnold Allen has fought in his UFC career are Gilbert Melendez, Sadiq Youssef, and Dan Hooker. 
And on the side of Kelvin Cater, you've got Max Holloway, Jeremy Stevens, Ricardo Lamas, Josh Emmett, Giga Chikadze, Zabit Magomed Sharpov, Hinato Moicano, Shane Burgos. I mean, competition level, it's night and day comparing Cater to Allen. The, the more competition, the higher level fights, the more experience. It's on the side of Kelvin Cater. And I think that experience is going to play a big factor in this fight against Arnold Allen. Now, you got Orthodox versus Southpaw. We talked earlier about the switch 45 where you briefly switch to Southpaw and then you step back and switch to Orthodox to square up your opponent's stance and have them on the center line. Um, that's something that Kelvin loves to do. He does it a lot. Um, you can go back and watch any one of his fights, and I'm sure you could see him use the switch 45. You know, that brief stance switch to Southpaw, then right back to Orthodox to square up the opponent's hips and get them on the straight line without that stance and really no power in their shots because they're throwing from that square stance. Uh, you know, Cater is definitely the better boxer, in my opinion. I think when it comes to power, I would give the advantage to Kelvin Cater. I think overall game planning and fight IQ, I might side with Arnold Allen. I think he might be a little smarter in his overall approach to the defensive aspect of mixed martial arts. He's always moving laterally. He's always going to be circling to that lead right side, you know, orthodox versus southpaw or southpaw versus orthodox. If we're talking about Allen first, he's going to be looking to get that lead right foot on the outside of the lead left foot of Kelvin Cater. The jab, the check right hook, and the overhand left or the straight left are going to be the weapons for Arnold Allen. If he can use that right hook and get to the outside of the lead left foot of Cater, which is going to negate one of his biggest weapons and his best weapons, which is going to be that jab from the lead left side. Doing that is going to negate a lot of the weapons of Kelvin Cater, but he also has a really solid hook into the right hand, so that hook can come over to the check. The same way that Arnold Allen can use a check hook over the jab of Cater, Cater can use the check hook to negate the check hook of Arnold Allen or the jab of Arnold Allen, the left hook into the right hand, the left hook right hand, left shot to the body. You know, they both can use check hooks, but Arnold Allen's going to be looking to move towards that lead right side, looking to go in and out, you know, rhythm step in and out, in and out, just bop, 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 circle to his right side. Straight left, dart off, circle to his right side. Check right hook, circle to his right side. Jab, right hook, circle. Jab, right hook, left high kick. Jab, right hook, left body kick. I think we're going to see Allen invest a lot in the body of Cater, and I think we'll see Cater invest in the body as well. But it's going to be more with kicks to the body for Allen and more with punches and boxing combinations to the body for Kelvin Cater. I think we're going to see Allen look to use that right hook to the left body kick, the jab to the left teeth kick, or the left push kick right to the bread basket of Kelvin Cater. The only thing is Cater's going to have a reach advantage, and not only does he have a reach advantage, but he uses that reach advantage well if he's able to control the distance, control the range, and get those combinations off. And that's something that you have to be cognizant of when you look into breaking down Cater versus Allen. I think that Cater is 100% the better boxer. I think he's more technical of a fighter than Arnold Allen. I think Arnold Allen has the bigger, the bigger advantage with the kicks and the swarming ability. You saw in the fight against Josh Emmett with Cater, which I believe Cater won, but they obviously gave the decision to Emmett. A lot of people thought Cater won that fight over five rounds, but... You see with this fight that, you know, Arnold Allen is going to have the ability to swarm Cater and land big shots. That straight left, that overhand left, that right hook, that left uppercut, that right hook, that jab, jab, right hook, straight left, jab, overhand left, left uppercut, right hook, double jab, 
just constantly swarming and trying to close the distance and pressure Cater is going to be the best weapon for Arnold Allen. Because if you stay at range, if you fight at a distance, if you stay in that boxing range for long enough, Cater's going to eat up Arnold Allen. Cater's going to piece him up. I think the jab of Kelvin Cater is going to be a big weapon. And I think it's going to be a jab that Arnold Allen's never seen before. Cater has one of the best jabs in MMA. And a lot of guys from that New England cartel, Jake Manini, Tyson Chartier, you know, Jim, and, you know, out in that neck of the woods, they have some of the best jabs in MMA. Rob Font, Kelvin Cater, they're probably the best jabbers in MMA or two of the best jabbers in all, any weight class, any division, any promotion, they have some of the best jabs in mixed martial arts. Rob Font, Kelvin Cater might have the best jabs inside the UFC as well. You know, and I think that the jab of Cater is going to give Allen a lot of trouble and it's going to make it harder for him to get that outside foot and circle away from it because Cater can time that jab, set it up, fake the jab, then use that left hook. When he fakes the jab, uses the left hook, the right hand's going to come behind it. Then we jab, right hand, fake the jab, fake the jab, jab, right hand, fake the jab, throw the right hand, fake the jab, lead left hook, right hand. Like he's, he can mix it up with the tempo. He can mix it up with the timing. And I think his ability to catch people coming in as they crash the pocket, the reason I mentioned the Arnold Allen exchange in the Dan Hooker fight where he was swarming him, had his hands down and got caught with the hook, bah! and his head spun around and he got dropped. Yes, he recovered quickly. Yes, he had the ability to recover. But to be honest, if you walk into range like that against Kelvin, Kelvin's going to time you, he's going to catch you, and he's going to hurt you. Kelvin has a very, very good step back rear six or the six because it's going to be from the rear side when you call it the six anyway the rear uppercut a step back rear uppercut he used it against Shane Burgos as he stepped in he used it against Zabit as Zabit tried to step in and close the range he's gonna use that against Arnold Allen the jab the front kick up the middle when if I Allen tries to lower his level but then as he tries to crash the pocket that step back rear six, the rear uppercut is going to be a big weapon for Cater. And if Cater can start to time that jab and then catch Allen coming in with that rear uppercut, then he can pair up the left hook and the right hand behind it. So he'll go jab, jab, rear uppercut, left hook, right hand. Step in, rear uppercut, circle off, left hook, right hand. I think the boxing, honestly, is going to be way too much in this fight for Allen. I think Allen is the more well-rounded fighter. I think that he is probably, he's, he's definitely the better kicker. But I just think that Kelvin doesn't use his kicks because he has so much success with dictating the range using his hands, using his footwork, using those elbows. You know, if Allen steps in and just tries to bum rush him, he's going to get caught with that rear elbow as well, the lead elbow, the spinning elbows like he caught Giga Chikadze with. Chikadze tried to pressure. Chikadze tried to take him out early, and you saw what happened in that fight. It wasn't a good time for Giga, and he ripped him apart like he was coming straight out of a horror movie. Beat up his face. You know, and you saw in the Josh Emmett fight, that jab tore up the face of Josh Emmett, the right hand, the rear elbows, the lead elbows stepping in, stepping elbows from Kelvin Cater as opponents try to land their power as they try to crash the pocket. He can step in and catch you. Now, I think if Arnold Allen resorts to his wrestling, he can have some success, but I think it's going to be more of shooting takedowns and then working your way up to the body lock or the over-under clinch up against the cage to try to hold Cater there and win minutes on the clock to then win rounds yourself. That's how I think Allen is going to use his wrestling. He might get one takedown. I could see him timing Cater, stepping in, trying to land a combo, slipping underneath and getting a takedown. But even if he gets one takedown on Cater, I think Cater's going to work his way back up to the feet. I think this fight, 
is a little bit higher level than the Giga Chikadze fight, but I think it's going to be another example of y'all must have forgot about my boy Kelvin Cater. I think Cater's too much for Allen here. He also has five-round experience. Arnold Allen doesn't have any five-round experience in the UFC, but Kelvin Cater has one, two, three, four. He's got four five-round fights. Out of his last four fights, they were all five-rounders. He lost two of them. I think he only lost one because I don't think he really lost that Josh Emmett fight. But he knows how to pick up the pace. He knows how to pick up on your on your timing, pick up on your counters, pick up on your striking combinations, and work his way up as the fight goes on. He might lose the first round to Arnold Allen. Arnold Allen might win the first round. But as it gets towards the midpoint in the second, into the third, into the fourth, into the fifth, that's where Cater's going to pick it up. That's where Cater's going to work on him. And the 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 big strikes that he was able to catch Sadiq with in that fight, I don't think Cater's going to be there for that left high kick behind the straight left. I don't think Cater's going to be there um, for a lot of the big power shots of Allen. I could see him landing that straight left and potentially hurting Kelvin. Kelvin takes a lot of damage. He took so much damage in that Holloway fight. He took some damage in the Dan Ige fight. He took some damage in the fight with Josh Emmett, you know, he Josh Emmett threw the bigger shots, but a lot of the time Cater was blocking it. And but he did take some big shots from Josh Emmett. But Emmett was the one who was ripped up, torn apart, and his face was destroyed from the jab, from the lead and rear elbows, you know, that rear uppercut, the front kick up top to the head. I think Cater's gonna be uh, have a showcase in this fight, but I do think it's a really, really solid matchup. I think it's a very difficult matchup for both sides. Like I think this is a tough fight for Cater. But I think Cater's just more experienced, and I think he's got more weapons to win this fight than Arnold Allen does. And when it comes down to the prediction, I'm going to go with Kelvin Cater. I think the jab is going to dictate a lot of this fight. That jab is going to turn over into the left hook. The left hook is going to turn over into the right hand. The The pressure of Allen when he drops his hands and he just throws those bombs. He, he sometimes just negates it and just overthrows with his power. You overthrow against Kelvin Cater and you're going to get caught with that jab. You're going to get caught with that right hand. You're going to get caught with that left hook right hand. And you're going to get caught with that uppercut up the middle. I think the defensive irresponsibility of Arnold Allen, even though he's very good defensively with his footwork probably more than his high guard, he's very good with his footwork, which I think can give Kelvin some trouble. You know, I think he uses his feet a little bit more than Kelvin does, but I still think Kelvin can time those counters, time those combinations, use that check hook over the lead right jab as Arnold Allen's going to try to use to set up that left high kick and vice versa. You know, I think if he uses that hook, uses the jab, the, the, the jab is going to dictate the fight for Kelvin, in my opinion. And I'm going to go with Kelvin to win a decision here. So my pick is going to be Kelvin Cater, the number five ranked featherweight in the division to improve to 24 and six and defeat the number six ranked Arnold Allen via 48, 47 unanimous decision. I think Allen potentially gets two rounds, but I think Cater's going to pick it up late in the fight and he's going to do enough damage, you know, have enough power to hurt Allen in this fight at certain points. I could see a finish from Cater, but I'm going to go with a decision. I just think Arnold is, you know, he's fighting out a tri-star. He's fighting under Faraz Sahabi. They're always going to come in with a good game plan. He knows how to win rounds. He knows how to fight technical technical and tactical. And um, I'm going to go with the experience of the number five ranked Kelvin Cater to win a 48-47 unanimous decision over the number six ranked Arnold Allen. All right, that's going to be it for my preview predictions and analysis for UFC Vegas 63 Cater versus Allen. The fight takes place this Saturday, October 29th. 
from the UFC Apex in Las Vegas, Nevada. You can get this podcast anywhere you get your audio podcast. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Breaker, Stitcher, and many, many more. Leave a review for the podcast over on Apple Podcasts. I'm going to try to get a couple of these picks uploaded to YouTube tonight for tomorrow and then into Saturday. I'm going to see what I can do. But this has been the Touch Em Up Podcast. I'm your host, Double M, and this is UFC Vegas 63 Preview, Predictions, and Analysis. I'm your host, Double M, and I'm out. Enjoy the fights this weekend.